Thank you, Danny. Good morning, everyone. My name is Ted, one of the pastors here. It's good to see you all this morning. This morning we'll be continuing, actually concluding our three-week look at the raising of Lazarus from John chapter 11. So please turn your Bibles or your electronic versions of your Bible to that passage as we pick up in verse 38. I have a question for you this morning to open things up. Raise your hand if you are a Protestant. By the way, if you don't raise your hand, you're a Catholic, like historically speaking. A little bit of fun. But seriously, have you ever thought about this question? Why are you a Protestant? Why are you a Protestant? So we're going to have a little history lesson to set up this passage today because what we're dealing with in this passage is so important, the glory of God. In fact, you'll see the title of today's sermon God alone. Essentially, that is the essence and the meaning of what it means for us to glorify God. And as we rewind 500 years and we look at this incredible event called the Protestant Reformation, and by, the way, by the way, Protestant just means protest, all right? Someone protested. Why did these great men, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Zwingli, and so many others, why did they protest? What was so wrong with the Roman Catholic Church? And it comes down to two words, so stick with me here. The first one is synergism. You've probably heard that before. Erg in the middle means work. So S-Y-N means together, cooperation. It just means the work of, of two or more. And that was really the summary of the theology of the Roman Catholic Church, that we as humans have to cooperate with God in order to be saved. And as the reformers, these heroes of ours, read the Bible, which was not being read for centuries, imagine that, they were like, wait a minute, that's not what the Word of God teaches. It teaches something else. So they invented a word called monogism, which again, mon, one, the work of one, to return to the reality that it's God and God alone who is responsible for our salvation, who is responsible for the fulfillment of the gospel mission. And this is so important. We can't get it wrong because if we get it wrong, we risk robbing God of his glory. Raise your hand if you want to rob God of his glory. None of us. That should be the scariest thing in our mind. So for today, we're going to work with this definition that I put up on the screen. I came up with it, so that means it's very simple. But I like this definition as we work through this. What does it mean for me, for us as Christians, to glorify God? And this is it. Giving him complete credit, honor, and praise for doing what only he and he alone is capable of doing. That's what it means to glorify God. And you see a verse there from Isaiah 42. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other. So important that we get this right. So here's our history lesson. Going back to the Protestant Reformation, everyone knows that there were five statements that our, the Reformers came up with to help us understand what this means, what the Reformation was all about. Does anyone know what they're called? Oh, they're up there already. Too late. The five solas, okay? The word sola is the Latin word for alone, all right? So that helps us to understand. And you should be familiar with these. These are what we affirm to as Protestants. If you don't, you're not a Protestant. And that's okay if that's the case, but let's talk. It's very important. So you see there, the foundation of the gospel, of our salvation, is Scripture alone. The, the initiation, right? Who's responsible for initiating salvation? It is the grace of God alone. 
Procuration, I had to make all the words line up, and I know it's a big word, but it simply means, how do I procure that? How do I obtain that? And you see here, it is by faith and faith alone. And then as far as mediation, who is our mediator? Who is the the go-between in between a holy God and a sinful man? And of course, we affirm, just like 1 Timothy 2, Christ alone is our only mediator. And then today's sermon, this is the big one for us, recognition. Who gets the credit for all of this? The glory of God alone. Now, what I've never done before, for those of you who are new with us, I come back to this a lot. I love history. So the, the Blue Ridge folks have heard it a lot, but I've never done this. Let's now look at what corresponds, what Roman Catholic theology corresponds or would have corresponded with, and you'll see that on the next slide. I call these the five symbols. There's no such thing, really. I'm trying to be cute here. Symbols is the Latin word for together, all right? So I'm trying to make a point. This is their theology. It was their theology then. It's their theology now. I'm not here to pick on Catholics. I was born one. Most of my family is, and I love them, but I have to be true in teaching the Word of God. This is what they believe. They believe that the foundation of the gospel and our salvation is cooperation between Scripture, their sacred tradition, what men have written in the past, and whatever the Pope says from the seat of Peter, or any Pope has said authoritatively. They like math, obviously. They like equations here. In terms of initiation, Yes, God's grace, but also the merits of the saints, not any saint, but the saints who have gone before us and yourself, right? You merited your own salvation. Makes sense? Not really. Procuration is a mixture of faith then and human effort, human works. The problem there is you're probably not going to get that done here, so you have to go to a place called purgatory and finish that off. By the way, raise your hand if you think this is good news. I don't know what the... The Greek word for bad news is, but that's what we would call this, not gospel. Uh, in terms of mediation, they believe it's Christ plus those saints I mentioned before, and then, of course, Mary, right? Mary mediating on our behalf. The saints mediating, again, that, that go-between, in between holy God and sinful man. And then finally, and this is the problem, this is what I want, I'm chasing after uh, as we get to today's passage, that the recognition then, look at all the people who get a thanks, who get some credit for your salvation and my salvation. If what they believe is true, God gets it, the saints again, gotta love those saints, uh, Mary, and you even get some of the credit for your own salvation. So 500 years ago, would you have been with the Reformation or not? I think we know the answer. So this all now sets up what we're gonna be looking at today. But before we get to that, let's see what Paul thinks. We're gonna be looking at some passages from Paul this week. Is, are we active or passive in our salvation? Let's look and see what Paul says. This is from the uh, greeting to the book of Galatians. He says to them, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. I see no other mention of a mediator there. Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God. No one else there getting credit either. The Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever, amen. He did it all. He's responsible for it all. He gets all the glory. And that's so important for us to get right. And that's why I've called today's sermon, God Alone. God Alone. So take all that I just said. Now we're going to point it towards the big idea, which will, will guide us in today's passage. And you'll see that up here as well. The raising of Lazarus brings glory to God alone in four ways that each 
point to the fulfillment of the gospel mission in and through Christ Jesus. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we simply come before you again as we continue to worship. We are a distracted people as Americans. We have a lot of things going on in our life, a lot of possessions, and those distractions tend to battle against your, your, uh, your will for us as we sit under the teaching of your word. So, Father, I pray for my friends here as we uh, gather together to hear from you that you would help us to push the distractions. Fill us with your spirit so we will respond to the preaching of your word with our attention and then with our worship and even with repentance and faith. Whether we're saved or whether those who are not saved, that they would come to know you even today for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so turn your Bibles to verse 38 of chapter 11, verse 38 of chapter 11. If you're joining us for the first time today or you haven't been here in a while, again, this is part three of our look at the raising of Lazarus. Uh, two weeks ago, we talked about the glory of God in Christ, and, and then last week we looked at Jesus' great I am statement, I am the resurrection and the life, and today we're finally going to get to the miracle of uh, Lazarus actually being uh, raised from the dead. So we'll begin reading in verse 38. But before we do, uh, you'll see this, this slide screen, or the point screen, if you can put the point screen up. I put them all together this week. These are the four ways that in today's passage, we will see God glorified. And the first one we'll be looking at is strengthening gospel faith. Uh, then we'll look at generating gospel faith, initiating gospel events. That refers to the passion, those of the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then finally, God gets glory through the fulfilling of the gospel mission. You don't have to worry about writing them all down. I'm sure Nathan will put these up each time we transition. But the first one we're going to look at, what we're going to see here, and we talked about this two weeks ago, that the end of this miracle, again, this miracle was a means to many ends, and one of them was the strengthening of the faith of those who already believed. We talked about it with the disciples in the beginning of chapter 11, and we're going to see it all wrapped up here when it comes to Martha, and of course, I'm sure Mary as well. So let's pick up in verse 38, and we'll read a few, few lines here. Then Jesus, deeply moved, again came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. We'll, we'll stop there. Um, just to kind of recap, at the end of last week's passage, we saw this verb that describes this emotional experience that Jesus was having. And the English translation says deeply moved. But if you might remember, if you were here, we said, no, the Greek word talks about something else. In fact, D.A. Carson said we should translate that he was outraged. He was infuriated. This is strong anger, okay? And we, what my belief is, and I shared that with you and I still hold to it, is what made Jesus so angry was seeing Mary broken and mourning over death. And, and also those who are with Mary, broken, mourning over death. And then seeing the disbelief of some in the crowd. All those things made him infuriated. And now he wasn't angry with them, all right? His anger is not directed at these people. Again, they're mourning the death of someone they loved. It was the creator God standing there and in that moment thinking, it's not, it was not supposed to be like this. I did not create you for death. 
And what I told you, and, and we're going to see this today, I want to bring that theme back in, is Jesus' anger is focused at the villain in the story, death himself, if we were to personify death. So we see this verb describing Jesus' emotion again, as now he's moving to the tomb. You can imagine a Western showdown. This is just how my mind thinks. I imagine a Western showdown. It's, it's going to be a duel here. It's not going to be much of one. But Jesus is even going to the villain's lair. He's going to the graveyard where, where death rules, where nobody beats death, right? Except for one, this man, Jesus, who has come, the God-man. And we're going to see what happens in a little bit. But I want you to see in verses 38 and 39, John is going out of his way using certain words intentionally to, to make us understand that Lazarus was dead and he was dead as a doornail, all right? He was absolutely dead. We see the words tomb. We see the words cave. We see this detail of the stone that was in front of the cave. Now, uh, of course, in the fourth century, the church, you know, this is after the Roman Empire became Christian, and they actually came and built a church over the traditional site of Lazarus's tomb, like they did every other tomb. So you could go there today and visit uh, what they believe to be Lazarus's tomb. So back then, the tombs were either cut vertically, like you see in the movies, right? A nice little traditional cave, but they were even cut horizontally as well, where bodies were put in horizontally. So just something to keep in mind, and, and maybe one day go see for yourself. So he's in the tomb. We see... Um, this, this perfect participle here, the dead man, that talks about the permanence, like he was permanently dead. And then we see Mary refer to this odor. I'm sorry, Martha. And this is right in character with Martha as we've gotten to know her, both in, in Luke 10 and in last week's passage. She was the proud host. She was the oldest sister, maybe even the oldest sibling. And can you imagine the horrors from her point of view of all these people smelling her dead brother's corpse? She's like, oh no, Lord. So she objects to it, which tells us she had no idea what Jesus was, was getting ready to do. So she objects to it. And that leads us to this incredibly important verse. Look at verse 40 with me. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? This wraps up so much of what we've looked at in these three weeks, going all the way back to verse 4 what Jesus told the disciples about the glory of God, that, that this whole thing has happened, Lazarus has died, and it's not just going to be for death, it's actually going to be for the glory of God. And we talked about that in several ways. This brings in what he told Martha last week in terms of he himself being the resurrection and the life. And to our point today, how we need to apply this, how we need to see this as fellow Christians of Martha, is that if we hold on to faith when God is clearly calling us to trust him, even with the most difficult circumstances, we have an opportunity, if we hold on, to see his glory, to see him do something that he and he alone can do. And when that happens, when we see that, our, our faith is strengthened. We, we come to grow in our trust and our ability to obey him and to hold on to the hope. Uh, one of you, I'm not going to say her name so I don't embarrass her, but she emailed me uh, about the sermon last week and she shared with me an acronym that she loved uh, when it comes to hope. Holding on, praying expectantly. I love that. So think of hope, acronym, holding on, praying expectantly. That's what Jesus is calling Martha to do. Don't give up on me. Hold on and you will see the glory of God. And so a few application points for us. Uh, this is more of a, a 
kind of a joke, but this is not really application. It's just interesting that uh, I did some research this week, and I found out that in the United States of America, we spend $18 billion a year on deodorant. That's about the odor thing. Pretty interesting. Uh, I thought that was, was unique, right? Odor is a big deal. So uh, something there for you as we transition. But the first application is just that reminder that what in your life right now is God calling you to trust him with that's difficult, that's hard, right? Hold on to the hope. We, by nature, like the path of least resistance. And as you guys know, following Jesus Christ is rarely, if ever, the path of least resistance. It's the path of the greatest resistance. And that's where our faith comes in. That's where following our truth, despite our feelings, is so important. And that's what God's calling Martha to do here. It's what he's calling us to do as well. Second, we have to recognize that for Martha and Mary and the disciples who were there and any other people who were already believers in Jesus, kind of in an old covenant sense, they had different eyes than everyone else that was standing there that day. When they saw Lazarus raised from the dead, they saw it with eyes of faith. And we can't take that for granted because there are some in this crowd, as hard as it is to imagine, we're gonna meet them in a few minutes. They saw the exact same miracle and they didn't believe it, probably hardened their hearts and they went and ran and told the Pharisees. How is that possible? And we have to remember that if you have eyes of faith, if you've been saved and you see uh, like, like they were getting a chance to see, it's a gift of God. Why do I mention that today? So we can, one, praise God, not take that for granted. And two, it protects us from judging lost people, right? As we look across the landscape of our nation today, we scratch our heads at how people can want and even vote for things that will destroy the very fabric of our nation. How in the world? It's a blindness, right? So just an opportunity for us once again to praise God and thank him for the eyes he has given us to see. Now again, let's look and see what Paul thinks about this. Here's another great passage from the beginning of Colossians. And in it, we see Paul giving God glory for what he has done in the strengthening of the faith of the Colossians. And so we need to join him and see that as well. He writes there, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel which has come to you. There we see Paul again giving God glory, knowing full well if this church that that he was indirectly responsible for planting is growing It's because of God and God alone. It's because of the activity of the Holy Spirit. So we need to be like Paul and recognize that in our own lives and the lives of others. In fact, as you see yourself growing, right, as you come to a circumstance that maybe you had earlier where maybe you didn't trust as much, maybe you were like that boat, uh, the sailboat in the wind with no anchor, you're getting tossed all over the place, right? We've all been there. And then you come to the next test, but you see yourself trusting God where you didn't before, Stop and praise him for that. That is evidence of the work of the Holy Spirit of God. And we should glorify God and God alone. So important for us. The last thing I want to point out in this first section is this. Martha almost failed. She had an enemy that day that almost tripped her up from experiencing the glory of God. And we have that same enemy as well. The enemy that wants us to check out when the going gets tough. The enemy that wants us to stay safe and not take chances 
for God. And I, can show, I could show you that enemy today, because all you have to do is look with me in the mirror. Enemy is ourselves. We are our own worst enemy. Satan gets way too much credit. I'm going to share with you a meme I, I saw on Facebook. This is the most theologically accurate meme I have ever seen. I don't know if you can all see it. Any Scooby-Doo fans? Fred says, now to find out who's been sabotaging my walk with Christ. And it was Fred. That is so theologically accurate. We can sometimes be our worst enemy. And it's good for us to know that. In fact, that's why. One of the reasons why. It's so important that we spend time with God at the beginning of each day. Again, no legalism, just practicality. So we can, we can put to death that flesh, the old man flesh that so easily trips us up. All right, so we've seen the first the first way in which God is glorified in this passage. The second one is this, by generating gospel faith. So on one hand, strengthening the faith of those who are already believers, but we're also now going to see the initiation of saving faith for those who before this miracle were not saved. And, and finally, in this second section, we're going to see finally the miracle of Lazarus being raised from the dead. So picking back up in verse 41. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. Believed in him. Another illustration for us to think about. I don't know how many of you have been to college. Uh, probably in high school, too, but I remember this distinctly in college. What was the attitude of your institution of higher learning towards plagiarism? Remember you got that speech like day one? Was it something that no big deal if you want to? All the schools I've been to, that's the one thing they have in common. You, if you plagiarize, you're going to die. I mean, essentially, that was the message. It's over for you. We do not, zero toleration for plagiarism. And why is that? Because when you plagiarize, you're taking someone else's hard work and then claiming it as your own. And that's another way to think of the glory of God. If we attribute man's effort to something God has done, even our salvation, we are robbing God of his glory. We're plagiarizing the work of the Holy Spirit. So that's helpful for me. I thought that might be helpful for you. Now, in this passage, a little review here, I've mentioned this, that this miracle, there's at least three very important signs or parables that the raising of Lazarus helps us with. Uh, we talked about it two weeks ago. It's a sign of Jesus' own death, burial, and resurrection. Now, of course, Lazarus was not resurrected. We'll talk about that in a minute. But it's a sign of that. We talked about how the road to Calvary runs through Bethany. The second thing is this. It's a sign. We talked about this more last week. It's a sign of our own resurrection in the last days when, when God returns and resurrects the church. Uh, that great resurrection, when we get our new bodies, that's when we will be resurrected. But the third one, which I want to focus on here in this part of the passage, is it's a parable for the conversion of each and every individual believer. Very important. And I'll show you what we mean as we walk through and hit a couple of uh, the high points here. 
First, let's again go to Paul. This is Romans 6, where we see him um, share this great theology as well. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So obviously the resurrection of Jesus is the ultimate sign of the salvation of each and every one of us. But even with this raising of Lazarus, we can make some observations of this as well. Before we get there, though, let's review what we've read. So Jesus, uh, we see him start out with prayer here. Now what's interesting is there's no request in this prayer. He immediately goes to thanksgiving. What's happening here, see, when, when I pray, I don't know about you, I can't speak for you, but when I pray, I'm typically going from a state of non-prayer and entering into a state of prayer with God. Now, I'm trying to get better at that, not always being the case, but with Jesus, we can guarantee that wasn't the case, right? He was always in communication with the Father. All that's happening here is the curtains being pulled back so that we can see uh, what's happening. Whenever he prays aloud, it's not for his benefit, because he's always talking to the Father. It's for the benefit of those around him. And we see him start off with thanks. The implication here is he's already asked, he's already prayed uh, that, that God would give him the power to raise Lazarus. But as he himself tells us, he's doing this for those around. Now look at the word believe in verse 42. This is why study of the original language is important. That word is in the aorist tense. So what that means, it's referring to initial faith. It's referring to those who would believe in him for the very first time. And we have content associated with it. It's not just believe. It's believe that God the Father sent Jesus, essentially the gospel, that they would believe the gospel about me, right, and be saved. And we're going to see what happens here in a few moments. But what I love here is that showdown has finally happened. Jesus comes up. Again, he's in, he's in the enemy's territory where the enemy has always won, where the enemy rules. And he's, we see these words, simple words, Lazarus, come out. Essentially, he's saying, I am the resurrection and the life. He's just specifying it to one man. Any fans of the movie 300? This is Jesus's, this is Sparta moment. He is kicking the door in on the enemy and defeating him. A, a preview and a sign of what he's getting ready to do in Calvary through the resurrection probably in a couple weeks. And again, a sign of what he does each time. He saves an individual and brings them from death to life. What a savior we have here. What a powerful God we have. Death is no match for him. No match. And I want you to see that. I want you to appreciate that. Now, here's a little bit of, of humor that you may have heard associated with this passage. I'll let D.A. Carson say it. He's, you'll see the slide up on the screen. Though it is not John's point, it has often been remarked that the authority of Jesus is so great that had he not specified Lazarus, all the tombs would have given up their dead on that day. Isn't that amazing? And it's true. And of course, one day that will happen. And I know we look forward to that day. And there's even a, an, we don't have time to go into it, but one of the veins of study I came across that I would love to go back and spend more time on is there's symbolism, if you look at the grave clothes, grave clothes of Lazarus and compare them to the grave clothes of Jesus. 
Remember Jesus' grave clothes? They were folded up nice in a pile. He didn't eat them anymore. He had a new body. He was resurrected. Lazarus is not resurrected here. He simply resuscitated to mortal life. And so he comes out with his grave clothes still on. Um, some people have criticized and said there's no way he could have come out like a mummy with his legs wrapped and everything. But uh, Jews did not wrap their bodies like Egyptians. So he would have been able to do the shuffle a little bit. I'm not going to go into details of how they wrapped him. But he would have shuffled out. If it was a vertical tomb, he would have rolled out, which would have been like really, like people would have screamed. Like, ah, <laughs> what was that? But what, one of the things I love here that we can easily miss is Jesus gives this instruction, unbind him and let him go. He didn't get so caught up in his own miracles that he forgot about the simple needs of those whom he healed, or in this case, brought back from the dead. And then in verse 45, we see the results. We see that indeed God is glorified because people have been saved this day. And you see that many of the Jews who had come believed in him. That's John's favorite construction in his gospel to tell us People have trusted in Jesus. There's personal faith happening here. And again, I I said this last week. I'll say it again. This crowd, this group of people who were converted on this day will come into play in two weeks when we get to the triumphal entry. So remember that, the Lazarus crowd. I'll refer to them then. This this group is very significant. So a couple application points uh, before we move on. And this takes us back to the very first verse, actually last week's first verse, verse 17, What condition was Lazarus in when Jesus showed up to Bethany? Dead. Four days dead, which meant really dead back then. How much, and again, remember, this is a a parable for our own conversion. How much did Lazarus contribute to his own salvation or his own resuscitation? Anything? Same thing with us when Christ saves us. We contribute nothing. We can't. Can a dead man resuscitate himself? Have you ever seen a dead man doing CPR? No. And it's important for us to see that. Where does Lazarus' part come in, right? Because we do have a decision, right? Everybody wants to talk about that. It becomes an idol for many. But I'll tell you what the decision is. Imagine you're Lazarus. You're in this dark, maybe dank, cold tomb laying on something very hard, some kind of stone, wrapped up in stinky bandages, right? You're not stinking anymore, but I'm sure the bandages were. All of a sudden, light breaks into the darkness. You can see it through your bandage, and you hear the voice of Jesus. What are you going to do at that moment? You're going to say, hey, no, no, I'm good. Just put the rock back. No. You're going to get up and by faith run to the Savior. That is an accurate picture of Christian salvation. So use it. It's a good tool when you're sharing the gospel. It's a great, great parable for us. In fact, look what Paul says here. Third greeting of one of his letters, but this from 1 Thessalonians. Look what he says to this church. He says, For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. How do you know that God's chosen somebody? Because our gospel came to you not only in word. The gospel comes to everybody in word. But also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. You see the results. That's how we know someone's been saved. Not that they just heard the gospel, but the gospel took and changed and converted them through the power of the Holy Spirit so that then we can see it and see the evidence of salvation, just like they saw the evidence of Lazarus coming out of the rock. 
Another good, another good application point for us in terms of evangelism is we have to be careful. If God has used you and I to lead someone to faith in Christ, we have to be very careful with the words we choose and sharing that awesome news with other people. We cannot say, I led so-and-so to the Lord. I'm serious. That's how easy it is for us to rob God of his glory. We can lead no one to Jesus. We can lead them to the cross. But when it comes to conversion, God and God alone, he needs to get all the glory. Now, we can say something to the effect of, man, God graciously used me at the end of what I'm sure was a, a long process of planting and watering to be there on the day and to even be the sickle that he used to harvest. That's obviously long. It might be hard to say that to somebody, but you get the gist. Share how God has used you in such a way that gives God all the glory. And watch out for the human pride. I've been there, trust me. I used to have the belt with the notches in it, right? And really, the, today I look back and wonder not how many people I saved, but how many false converts did I make? And that breaks my heart. That's another sermon, though. Finally, last application point on this section, and I promise the last two are going to go a lot faster than the first two. This gives us a good reminder of how we should aim in our prayer life. We're never going to be where Jesus is with prayer, right? He was the God-man. He and the Father are one. But learning to do what Paul talks about when he says pray without ceasing. Uh, I think it's important. This is what I try to do. I'm, man, work in progress. But I try to have an initial time of, of longer prayer in the morning before I start my day and then build that foundation. And then as I go about my day, have that conversation. Obviously, it's going to start and stop. But have that, try, try to just to talk to God and have that conversational walk with him. As you see opportunities or hear of opportunities and, and pray. So I think it's a great way, a great goal for all of us, and that's at least what I'm trying to do. So we've seen the first three ways in which God gives, gets glory in this passage. Now we're going to switch gears really quickly and see the final two. The third one is this, initiating gospel events. So let's pick back up in verse 46. So in contrast to those in the crowd who were saved, it's hard to imagine, but starting in verse 46, some of them, but some of them, not getting saved, not believing, instead went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Shame on him. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Amen. Wouldn't that be great? And the, and the Romans then will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. We'll stop there. Any PBS fans? Anyone like PBS, right? Some, man, nobody likes PBS. Nobody's hand raised. I just assumed. I like the PBS history shows and nature shows. And if you've watched the PBS show, right when it's over, what do they do? They tell you who's responsible. And you hear that voice. Today's program has been bought, brought to you by. And I say that because these men, like the, the Friday Jesus was killed, they would have loved to have taken credit. In fact, they did. You see them out there mocking Jesus, taking credit for killing him, for putting him on the cross. And in fact, the PBS announcement would be, today's... Execution has been brought to you by the Caiaphas Foundation. He's been killing God's prophets for hundreds of years. It'd be something like that. 
But what I want you to see, friends, is that even with the bad stuff, even with persecution, even with martyrdom, which this is the ultimate martyrdom, when Jesus will die for our sins, God was in control of all of it. God was behind it all. He crushed his son so that you and I could go free. So even in this brokenness, even in the tragedy of the death of Jesus Christ, we should glorify God and praise God for how behind the scenes he orchestrated and sovereignly used these events. And that's what John does. John attributes this uh, to God, right? That God is still in control even in the darkness of this plot against Jesus' life. So really quickly, what's happening here is this is an official meeting of the Sanhedrin. In fact, we make so much about the trial that took place um, after Jesus was arrested, we have to understand that what John's telling us here, Mark alludes to it in Mark 14, that there was an official trial actually before that week even came because of the raising of Lazarus. So this is actually the first trial. This is the trial where they found him guilty and authorized his arrest. And so when you look at the other trial, which we look at more often on Easter, uh, you need to put the two together and understand, you know, go ahead and do the research on how the Jews in the first century, how the Sanhedrin did business. Essentially, you have two branches of the government in one here. This is the judicial and legislative branch, which is never good for those two guys to get together, but here they do. Uh, And they're coming together. The, The Pharisees, from what it seems, are complaining. They're in distress. Nothing we've tried has worked. What are we going to do? If he goes on like this, everyone's going to believe, which we, of course, amen that. That's, that's wonderful. And you see the Pharisees' motive, which I've seen elsewhere in the Gospels, is jealousy. They were so jealous that everyone was flocking to Jesus. And then you see Caiaphas come in. Now, Caiaphas is a priest. That means he's a Sadducee. Sadducees were, they didn't believe the Bible. They didn't believe the miracles. They were more in it for politics and power. And you see their fear was Rome coming and taking away their nice little deal they had as very wealthy politicians who were in control of Jerusalem. So they're all lamenting. And one of the things I learned this week, Josephus tells us that Sadducees were very rude, very rude when they met like this. And that's actually what happens. If you look at uh, verse 49 and 50, Caiaphas is insulting his fellow Sanhedrin members. He's saying, essentially saying, you idiots, you don't know anything at all, right? You guys have tried what you've done and it hadn't worked. Let me tell you what we have to do We need to kill this man. And this is a political mindset here in the first century. And this this has happened before. It was not new with Jesus. But essentially, it went along the lines of this. That yes, his murder is wrong. But the lesser evil justifies the greater evil, which would be Rome coming and taking our place, our temple, our nation. Essentially destroying us. And so Jesus then becomes a scapegoat. Now, he's talking in sacrificial language. We know Caiaphas isn't thinking substitutionary atonement here, but John is. Look what John says in verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. So John's showing us there the sovereignty of God, that God is actually speaking through Caiaphas, and Caiaphas doesn't even know it, just like he's spoken through the prophets of old. And that's an amazing thing for us to see again. God is glorified in bringing about the passion events, which we'll get to when we resume John, probably the beginning of next year, but we'll let you know more about that 
um, as we move forward. So a few application points for us here. Uh, and, the, and really, this just one big one I want to hit up. And this is hard for us. It's hard for us to see the glory of God when bad things happen. And I know if you're anything like me and you look at our nation right now, things are getting scary, scarier. I remember being a new Christian in the mid-90s, and you'd have these prophet-type people saying, oh, this is going to happen in, your, in our country. And everyone's like, no, it's not. Yeah, that's never going to happen. There'll never be a day when the church is persecuted or you know, they're taking God out of everything and, and you know, LGBTQ, I can't remember the rest. Uh, and, and their agenda is running things. And it's happened. It's happening. But I want to encourage you this morning that God is still in control. In fact, I will tell you, I firmly believe God is behind what is happening in our country right now. I firmly believe he is the one behind it. And we as Christians, even we need to learn to glorify God even with things like this. And I turn your attention. We don't have time to spend. I'm already over time. I know that. But, but, but hang with me. This is so important. We don't have time to spend with this passage. But here's your homework assignment for this week. Read Romans 1, 18 through 32. It's where Paul describes the process of what he calls the pouring out of the wrath of God on a people. Now, when we think of God's wrath being poured out, we think of the flood, we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, and yes, he does that sometimes, but those are more exceptional. In general, when he judges a nation, he pours his wrath out in what we see here and what I believe is happening in the United States. And I tell you all this because when you understand that God's behind it and he's in control of, all, of it all, it helps to deal with the anxiety. It helps to deal with the fear, and it starts to build faith and bring about a desire to surrender to whatever's coming, that we can be used for the glory of God, even in the dark days that may very well be ahead. So look at the screen up here. You can write these down. You'll find them yourself, but these are the three indicators that Paul gives as to how you know the wrath of God is being poured out in your society, upon your nation. First of all, uh, the ungodly, that's the context here, the ungodly suppress the truth of God. So ask yourself, have the ungodly in our country suppressed the word and truth of God in our nation? Yeah, it's been going on for a long time. Many of you have seen it longer than uh, those of us who are younger. Secondly, and this is a direct result, the ungodly's thinking becomes futile. It, it's head-scratching, like, ah, how can you... Uh, enjoying the fruit of capitalism, want to vote in socialism, which will destroy everything you love. It makes no sense. It's backwards. God did that. That's what's happening as the truth of God is being rejected. Futile thinking. Evil's good. Good is evil. Like Isaiah talks about, we're seeing that. And then finally, and this is the scariest one, and I think we're starting to see some of this, but their foolish hearts then become darkened. They go from bad to worse. Uh, the potential of human depravity is seen in the things that they... And, and, and here you, get, you have God more active in doing this one. This is where he is darkening the hearts of man. And you're like, Ted, you're wrapping up your sermon. You got us depressed. What's going on? It's because I love you guys. And I don't want you to go through life with your head in the sand. Like, it's so easy to do. I want us to be ready for what's coming while still praying that God would graciously bring another awakening and maybe we don't have to go through... All of that. Man, that's, you know, pray for the best, but 
Prepare for the worst. That's how I try to live my life. So let me encourage you now. Let me skip forward a few chapters in Romans to Romans chapter 8, because this now shows us how we are to face this coming brokenness, this coming reality, and be lights in the growing darkness of our nation. Look at these great verses from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And look what he's done for us, friends, in this. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. The word glorified there is in the past tense. We have not yet been glorified, those of us in this room. It's in the past tense. Why? Because for Paul and for us in reality, you can take it to the bank. It's as good as done. And that, my friends, should be incredibly encouraging you. God has taken care of the ends. He's calling us now to surrender to the means, to the rest of the time that remains. He's taken away the most scary thing that we could ever imagine, much scarier than our nation going down the tubes, much scarier than Christian persecution and martyrdom. He's taken care of eternal damnation and separation for every one of us who call upon the name of the Lord. And that's an encouraging thing. And unfortunately, there's a paragraph break in your Bibles because look what comes next. What then shall we say to these things that God alone has done? If God is for us, say it. Say it louder. No one. No one. He who did not spare his own son has, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And the final one, my friends, the final one is the ongoing one, and that is fulfilling the gospel mission. The fourth way that God is glorifying himself that we see in the Lazarus passage, and this is where we come in today, is the fulfillment of the gospel mission. If the Great Commission was up to us, it would have died out a long time ago. You ever study the Dark Ages? God is fulfilling the Great Commission. He's inviting us continually to join him in that. Look what John says there in verse 42. I'm sorry, 52. The high priest didn't just say this for the nation of Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. There we see for the second time in two chapters, John foreshadowing the Gentile mission. It's not just about him saving Jews. It's about saving Jews and Gentiles and making them one. And I want to end on this note, my friends, that God is calling us as his church to join him in his great commission because he's still doing this. He's still doing this each and every day. And this passage highlights two very important realities. Again, think of John's perspective. He's writing in the 90s. 60 years have gone by since the events he's writing about. And he's no longer in Judea. He's no longer a country Galilean hanging out in Judea. When he writes this, he's somewhere out in Asia Minor with a view to Europe. Who would have thought if he told John, hey, in 60 years, you're going to be ministering on the border of Asia and Europe, right? That was like, for us, that would be like the darkest tribe of Africa, just so far from home. And look at him. And he's seen the gospel. He's heard and seen the ministry of Paul. He's seen the gospel go to the ends of the earth. He's had probably the greatest perspective of any of the apostles on what God did in that first century. And he, in a way, is celebrating it here. And he's also handing us that baton that we would take it 
and we would run and take our length, our lap, if you will, in the great relay of the Great Commission. So I want to end with this, and you'll see it up on the screen. This is the TCBR vision and mission statement as it stands now. It's good for us to be reminded about what God is calling us to do. The vision that we see a people transformed by the word of God, the gospel, making disciples, there it is, for his glory in Blue Ridge and around the world. And then there's our mission, which comes right from it, not rocket science, to make faithful disciples through the gospel of Jesus for the glory of God. One of the things I love about the book of Acts, after chapter eight, it just ends. It ends abruptly. And I remember learning that in seminary. I thought, you know what a good name for a ministry would be? Acts 29. I think everybody has that thought. And then you realize there already is a ministry called Acts 29, doing incredible things. The point is, it's not over. It's continuing. So let's shut this one down with that same abrupt reality as a signal that we've got work to do once this is over. Today, tomorrow, and the next day. Will you join us in fulfilling the Great Commission for the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. What an incredible chapter. Maybe four sermons, more than three would have been better. But nonetheless, such incredible truth. And Father, we recognize that you are responsible for salvation. You and you alone. Thank you for the grace you give. And and Father, I pray that you would help us as individual believers and as a church join you in fulfilling your great commission as you continue to save people. Just to think that when we all woke up this morning, you had been working across the other half of the planet for hours, planting, watering, and harvest. We can rest assured that when we opened our eyes this morning, you had brought several new brothers and sisters to faith in Christ in Asia in Australia, in Africa, and even parts of Europe. Lord, we want to be part of that. We don't want to drag our feet. We don't want to have our hand and our head in the sand. We don't, we don't want to be so obsessed with our busy schedules and our things, Father. Break us away from that and graciously connect us to your great commission right here in North Greenville County. What are you doing here and how do you want us to join you in being your hands and feet and your tools? to bring men, women, and children to faith in Jesus, all for your glory, Father, for what you have done. We love you. We thank you for what you've taught us the past few weeks in this great chapter. Help us now to go live it out as you continue to save your children. Be with us now as we continue to worship you in song. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.